although it's not maybe not necessarily obvious to you in, in uh, what we're in a kind of a middle of a chapter towards the end, uh, what we have here is a new section that uh, begins uh, to transition from Jesus' parables of the kingdom, which we've spent the last couple of weeks looking at. Those are specific teachings from Jesus. Now we move into various stories about people who encountered Jesus. I find that the teachings are a little easier to teach through because I know exactly what we're supposed to learn. The narrative's not so much uh, because um, we can get sidetracked sometimes in, in the stories of them, but they're very important. and We want to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. These narratives that begin here at the end of chapter, 53, uh, chapter 13 in verse 53, 54, are uh, Matthew's connecting uh, s- uh, several stories together to convey some important truths about Jesus' identity. Uh, and we see basically one question being answered by multiple different groups of people or individuals, and that question simply is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And it's a very important question to ask, a very important question to know the answer to. The answer might seem obvious to many of us, uh, but for many people, both in the text before us, as we'll see over the next several verses and in our in our present day, the answer is not quite that obvious to everybody. But it's also important that we learn to answer the question properly because, uh, and we base it on Scripture because there's a lot of people who will confidently give you the answer to the question. Who's Jesus? Go out and ask 10 people this week and you're going to probably get 10 different answers. Who is Jesus? What does that mean? Uh, and people will confidently give an answer and be very happy with their answer, with their response. But it's not necessarily true. It's not necessarily the right answer, the right response. And so this morning, we're just going to take two of them and, and look at them and see from the text the two different answers to this question, who is Jesus? We'll find, I hope you'll find, that these are pretty common answers uh, even today. We, we'll see them in the text. Many people had, but people have those continued responses today. But I hope you'll see from the Scripture that these are neither of them are true. And this is why all of it matters. Why do we spend time? Uh, well, we spend time because Matthew spent time. But why did Matthew spend time discussing this question? Because it matters how you see Jesus. Because what you believe about Jesus will determine how you respond to Jesus. Or another way to say it, how you view Jesus affects how you worship Jesus. I've already said many times, I'll say it again, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's impossible to remain neutral with Christ. You cannot not respond to Jesus. You will either receive Him or you will reject Him. There are only two options here. And so this morning, as we begin to look at these different uh, responses, we don't necessarily focus just on the response to Christ, because there's really only two, yes or no, receive or reject, but we look at the reasons behind these responses, and particularly the negative responses to Jesus. So beginning in verse 53, we read about Jesus' visit back to his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, This was the place where Jesus grew up as a boy. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem as a young boy. Joseph and Mary moved him to Nazareth, and that's where he he spent his childhood. 
Nazareth wasn't a very big city. Uh, the population there uh, is estimated from as low as 200 people to as much as 1,600 people, but it's still not very big, very small town. I imagine it's probably, it was probably like any other small town uh, that, uh, that, well, we're all familiar with what it's like to be in a small town uh, where everybody knows everybody and you know everybody else's business and uh, what you don't want to know, you know, and what, there are no secrets kept and more than likely many people are related to everybody else. Uh, these these people uh, in Nazareth would have remembered Jesus as a boy, much uh, much like those of you who are uh, you've graduated from Sherman, you've lived in Sherman all your life, and and uh, sometimes it's hard to uh, be uh, recognized as an adult uh, when they can remember uh, you in kindergarten, or they can remember babysitting you, or burping you, or something uh, embarrassing uh, of the of that nature. I imagine that must have been similar to this Nazareth situation. They would have remembered Jesus as a boy playing in the streets with his friends, worshiping in the synagogue with his family, uh, helping his dad in the carpenter shop, learning that trade. What's interesting is that we don't really have a lot of information about Jesus as a child. Uh, We read quite a bit about his birth. We have just a few stories in between, and we really get a lot of the, 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 the story of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. But the little that we do have of Jesus reveals to us one thing, at least, that there wasn't really anything outstanding about the boy, Jesus, uh, growing up. What I mean by that is that he wasn't walking around with a halo over his head that everybody could tell something's different about that one there. He wasn't performing miracles on the playground at school. Uh, he was just like every other kid in the, uh, from a human perspective. Uh, obviously, he's divine, but he was, he was, uh, n- there wasn't anything remarkable about Jesus uh, as a boy. And to the people of Nazareth, he was just another kid who grew up in their tiny village, not doing anything particularly worth mentioning. So when Jesus now returns to Nazareth, the people are amazed at this man. They're amazed by what he does and by what he says. If you'll begin there, look back at verse number 53. And when Jesus finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Jesus now has returned to his hometown after establishing himself in 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 the surrounding area as a teacher. As we've read already, and you know just from... Uh, Having read ahead, you know what's coming up. Uh, People have been coming to Jesus in droves uh, to to hear him teach, and they witness his miracles, and they've they they spread the word about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, word is getting back to the people in Nazareth of all that Jesus is doing throughout Galilee, and so we might expect Jesus's return to be something of a celebration. He's the local hometown hero. Uh, and he's back now, and we're going to uh, uh, praise him. We're going to uh, have, a, have a celebration, but that's quite the opposite. Uh, the people are astonished at Jesus. They're dumbstruck. They're amazed. They just can't believe it. Because nothing about Jesus as a boy prepared them for the Jesus standing before them now teaching in their synagogue. They don't know what to think. He speaks with such wisdom and authority. He has great power to do mighty works and miracles, and they can't figure out how it happened. So they begin to question among themselves. Look at verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? 
And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they begin to reason among themselves that since Jesus has no formal training as a rabbi, since he doesn't come from some uh, some prominent influential family, he just couldn't be this wise or this powerful. It's just not possible. And essentially they're saying, we, we know who his family is. His father was Joseph the carpenter, and, and some uh, will, will, will sur, uh, surmise here that Joseph is, is dead now, and, and uh, Mary is, is, is widowed, uh, but we don't know that for sure. But they knew who Joseph was, the carpenter, and, and, and Jesus was himself a carpenter, having learned his father's trade. They said, we know his, his mom, we know his brothers, his sisters still live here with us in town. This just isn't possible for him to be who he claims to be. It's not possible for him to be who others are claiming him to be. The great things and claims that we hear about Jesus just cannot be true. And so they base their response to Jesus based on this logic. The result is in verse 57. They took offense at him. They saw Jesus as just an ordinary guy from an ordinary village, and therefore they couldn't and wouldn't believe that he could be anything else than ordinary. They were offended by him. They were scandalized by him. The word literally means they stumbled over him. We've, we've seen that word recently as we've studied through Matthew, uh, as, uh, all the way back in chapter 11 when Jesus was talking to John the Baptist and he said, blessed is he who does not stumble over me, who's not scandalized by me. Uh, again, we saw it used to describe the rocky soil, how it responds to the, the seed of the Word of God and in, uh, in chapter 13. And this rocky soil stumbles or is offended or falls away due to the persecution. Luke 4.28 tells us that these, that these people were filled with wrath towards Jesus. And we see in verse 58 that they just did not believe. For all the wisdom... And all of the, of his, uh, for all the wisdom of his teaching and all the power of Jesus' miracles, they just would not believe in him. The rumors didn't persuade them. His own teaching did not convince them. They refused to believe that Jesus was anything other than a regular guy. And because the people of Nazareth would only see Jesus as a regular man, it yielded in them an unbelief that he could be anything other than that. In other places, Jesus was seen and believed in as the Messiah. And it's in those places where he would heal and cleanse and help multitudes of people. But not so in his hometown. They did not believe. Therefore, he did not do many mighty works. So Jesus responded to them in verse 57. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. In other words, he's saying a prophet, which they do not take him to be, uh, will not receive the respect or honor he deserves in the place he grew up or with the people he grew up with. Because of their unbelief, he didn't do many mighty miracles there. He did a few. Mark tells us that, uh, Mark 6 says that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, but not as many as could have happened. Not as many as should have happened in a place where everyone should have believed, where literally everyone should have believed. They knew Jesus. 
And they should have believed, and miracle upon miracle should have and would have happened. There were only a few. Why? Because of unbelief. There are people today who only see Jesus as a man in history. You certainly can't deny the historical fact that a man called Jesus lived and walked on the earth in first century Israel. You don't need faith to believe that. You just need a history book. But to see Jesus as more than a man, to see Him as something more than that, to see Him as the Son of God, or as God Himself, that's a different story. And that requires God-given faith. The Scriptures teach us that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. He's not half and half. He wasn't 99% and one. He was fully 100% God and fully 100% man. Jesus must be a full man in order to take the place of fallen men, to identify with us, to sympathize with our condition and to suffer in our place. But that at the same time, He must also be fully God in order to perfectly and effectively satisfy God's justice and overcome death. During our release time on Wednesdays, uh, we, I, I, work, I work with the first and second grade kids, and we're working through uh, a thing called the New City Catechism. I think the, the boys in, in Sunday school are working through the same thing. If you're not sure what a catechism is, it's just a way to teach people Christian doctrine through a series of questions and answers. So we begin with easy ones like, what is God? Now, that might not necessarily be easy, but we ask, what is God? And the answer is, God is the creator of every, everyone and everything. And uh, there's little songs that we learn to mem- memorize these things with. Well, the, the, the New City Catechism, as we, we were teaching through them, uh, it, uh, it asks this question, why must the Redeemer be truly human? And the answer that in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for sin. It also asks the very next question, why must he be truly divine? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. Jesus must be God. He also must be man. He must be God so that he could bear the weight of sin and endure God's wrath on the cross. But he must be man so that he can be the substitute for us. So he's not just a man. And a lot of people have a problem getting past that point. Jesus is is just a good man with good teachings. He is a man with good teachings, but he's not just a man with good teaching. He is God himself, the very Son of God. Now as we move into chapter 14, we read the second example, Herod the Tetrarch. Herod was a ruler in this area, but he was, he was, he wasn't necessarily the king. Uh, that would just been a, a, a very empty generic title. Uh, he was still under Rome and, and Caesar's authority. And news is spread to the palace where Herod uh, lives about Jesus, and he begins to wonder who Jesus is. If you read Mark and Luke, they have a few extra details about this interaction that Matthew doesn't include, and I find them particularly helpful as uh, to just help paint the picture here. But uh, Herod begins to wonder, and he comes up with a different response than those from Nazareth. See, Herod didn't have a history with Jesus. He'd never met Jesus before. He didn't know Jesus like the people in Nazareth did. All that Herod had were the stories and rumors that he'd heard. But verse 1 begins, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. 
Herod had uh, heard the news of Jesus, and instead of just dismissing him as another guy like they did in Nazareth, he receives the news in a very different way. This is John the Baptist, he decides. He's risen from the dead. And now he's back performing miracles and teaching the people, and I've got to see him for myself. And at this point in the story, Matthew takes a little sidebar from moving in the direction that he has been, and he stops for a moment, and he says, let me explain to you why Herod thinks that this is John the Baptist. We've already read about John the Baptist. As early as chapter 3 and chapter 4, we read about uh, John the Baptist coming and preparing the way for Jesus. Well, as we got into chapter 11, we read that John the Baptist was in prison. You remember all the way back there? And, and John was, was, was doubting and he sent messengers to Jesus and he said, are you the one that should come or, do we sh- or should we be looking for another? Well, this now, Matthew tells us what happened to John who was in prison. And we don't know exactly when this happened, but uh, at some point, this is uh, verse number 3 tells us this is how John ended up. Herod was unfamiliar with Jesus, but he was very familiar with John because he had put John in prison. Verse 3 there, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him into prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And we already read the rest of the story there, and and we won't spend a lot of time on this because because it's it's not necessarily where Matthew's trying to go. Although there's there's things that that we want to we want to gather from this, but we already read earlier about John's imprisonment, and now we're learning exactly what happened to him. See, Herod had decided to divorce his own wife so that he could marry his brother's wife, and and and, and history. Uh, fills in some more of the details and and it was a very weird situation it was all also his niece and and it was and it was a half brother half sister anyways Herod was married Herodias was married to a man named Philip who was the half brother of Herod and and they met and they fell in love and they decided we need to be together and so they both divorced their own spouses so that they could be happily ever after and of course this is against God's law very inappropriate for uh, for any of God's people, uh, any of those who have been trained in, in in the law and very aware of what God's law is. Uh, very inappropriate for them, specifically for those in a leadership position. And so John the Baptist, bold preacher that he was, uh, called John, uh, Herod out on this. And he says, it's not lawful for you to do this. You cannot have this. It is unlawful for you to have this woman. Not just the one, the act that you did, but the, the ongoing sin that by you having this woman is not lawful. This is wrong for you to do. And, and, and the word there uh, describes that this, uh, that he didn't tell him one time. It was a constant telling. It is not lawful for you to do this. You can't be doing this. You're in sin. You're living uh, against God's law. Well, Herod didn't like that. Herod's wife didn't like that. History describes Herodias as a very wicked woman, a very, very evil, uh, uh, evil woman, very, just plainly, plainly put it there. And, and they didn't like John calling them out on their sin. And, and the Bible tells us that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he put all the stories together. Herodias wanted John dead. That's how she was going to pay him back for his preaching. And uh, Herod, uh, he seems to go back and forth on this. He wants John dead, but he doesn't want John dead. He liked, he kind of liked John. He didn't like what John said, but he liked, he liked what John said. He was kind of wishy-washy in, 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 in how he responded to John. Uh, and when we, it was a conflicted relationship. Mark writes, when, uh, when he heard, when John, when he heard John preach, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. 
Can you imagine that? Coming and, and it, someone coming to church and sitting there going, I hate this, but they come back every Sunday. Like, why are you coming? If you don't like what they're saying, but that's what, that's what Herod would do. He would listen. He's like, I can't believe this guy, but I'll see you next Sunday. Okay. Okay. John, come back. You know, it was a very, but so, uh, at the same time, uh, he, he didn't want to kill John because he feared the people. The people of Israel recognized John as a prophet. Remember, Jesus said, there's no one greater born among women, and, and John is the greatest prophet, and, 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 and the people recognized that, and so Herod was afraid of the people, and he wanted to kill him, but he didn't want to kill him, because he kind of liked to hear what he had to say, even though what he had to say, he didn't like. And then he wanted to kill John, but he didn't want to kill John, and Herodias is sitting over there in the corner just waiting and biding her time. Well, the day comes, it's Herod's birthday. Herodias' daughter, her name was Salome, and uh, she, she danced for him. She's probably 12, 13, 14 years old, and she dances before him and pleases Herod so much that he foolishly makes a promise to give her whatever she wants up to half of his kingdom. Well, her mother takes advantage of this and instructs her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist, and uh, she complies. Now Herod's in a pickle. Herod didn't want to kill John. He, he was in prison. He was, he was happy just leaving him in prison, kind of shut John up and leave, and so that uh, he wouldn't be, uh, reminding him of his ongoing sin. But now he's made a promise in front, not just to this girl, but in front of all of those people that are with him. His, 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 his highest officers have heard him make this oath. What's he going to do? Well, he can't go back on his oath now because he has to save face in front of these officers, and so he complies. And he uh, orders the execution. John's head is brought to the girl, who then brings it to her mother. We don't know anything else but besides that. Uh, there's some other really you know, disturbing historical uh, details uh, with that, but uh, this, is, this is just a very sad way to end a, uh, the, the, the ministry of a great man, John the Baptist. But so now that we go back to our to, to what Matthew has been telling us, this story, John's been dead for a while. And 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 so now Herod begins to hear of Jesus' fame, and he begins to put two and two together, if if they equal four here, and he says, Well, I killed John, and now this guy's coming back. And and out of guilt, maybe, out of a conscience that knows that what he did was wrong, uh, he uh, assumes that now this is John the Baptist has come back from the dead and has been given the power to do such awesome things. He saw Jesus as John, a resurrected prophet. Regardless of how, you know, what he was thinking by, by saying this, we know that he desired to meet and to see Jesus. And Matthew doesn't really finish that story and tell us how it, how it ends up, but if we look ahead in, in Luke, we read in Luke 23 that uh, during Jesus' arrest, when, uh, Her- when, when Jesus was brought to Pilate and Pilate was doing everything he could to just kind of get rid of the situation. He was, he was in a real, uh, real difficult situation. He just wanted to pass the buck on to somebody else. And he found out that Herod was in town and that Jesus was a part of Herod's district, if you will. And so he sent him to Herod. Well, Herod was really excited about this because remember, he's heard about, he's heard about Jesus. He's wanted to meet him for a long time to see, uh, some, some great sign. And so Luke 23, 8 says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. See, Herod was curious to meet Jesus. He wanted to, to see it. 
He was, but he was curious and he was correct in his recognition of the prophetic authority and power that Jesus had. But he didn't realize that Jesus is greater than John. He's not John. He's, he's a prophet like John was a prophet, but he was a much greater prophet than John was. Remember what John said of Jesus. He said, I'm not even worthy to carry the guy's shoes. He's coming after me and, and I'm unworthy to, 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 I'm not even worthy to carry the guy's shoes here. Uh, he's, he's going to be that much greater of a prophet. He's not John the Baptist. He is greater than John the Baptist. And in the end, Herod didn't recognize the extent of Jesus' greatness. He was only interested in being entertained. He expected Jesus to do some private miracle for him. He was interested in Jesus as a performer. All he wanted was a magic show. When Jesus wouldn't comply, Luke tells us he wouldn't even answer him. When he would ask him questions, Herod was unimpressed. He began to mock him and treat him with disrespect and contempt. He saw Jesus as this amusing sideshow, someone he could bend to his will and have fulfill his desires. But that's not the real Jesus either. Jesus is not just a man, and Jesus is not an entertainer. He's not a performer. He's not someone that fits into our agenda. But even today, there are people with similar views and expectations of Jesus. They have some kind of problem. They have something that needs to be fixed in their life, and so they go to church. They start reading the Bible. They start praying, and they expect now to have some miracle because of the time that they've invested. They expect God to come rushing in and perform some magic trick for them and amuse them, to entertain them because they've given Him a little time and attention. But then when God doesn't go along with our demands, they reject it. They're not interested in worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. They're, we're, they're, they want the, the happier, easier, less demanding version of Jesus. But see, if a person is ever going to see the real Jesus, they have to be able to recognize Him for who He truly is. They must see Him in both humanity and divinity. They must recognize Him as the Sovereign Lord. The problem that the people of Nazareth had was that they could only see Jesus' human side. Herod's problem was that though he saw Jesus as a mighty prophet, he was more interested in being amused than in repentance. When people have the wrong view of God, they reject the real Jesus. And by rejecting the Son of God, they condemn themselves. John 3.18 says, Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the question for each of us, how do you see Jesus? What about you? Do you see Jesus as a good man who has good teachings, really good advice, but not certainly applicable to everybody. I mean, for those who believe that kind of stuff, it's helpful for them, but it's it's just one of many options out there. He certainly can't make demands of you and of your life. Or like Herod, is Jesus a genie in a lamp to you? Do you expect Him to come out and do your bidding whenever you want Him and whenever you need Him? Either way, you've missed the real Jesus. But if you recognize who Jesus claims to be, the very Son of God, those are serious implications that go along with that. 
Because if Jesus is God, as he claims to be, then what he says matters. What he commands, we are obligated to obey. If Jesus is God, then everything he says is true. If Jesus is Lord, then that means he's in charge, not me. If Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, the King of kings, the Son of God, then he deserves and rightly demands my worship, my devotion, my praise, everything that I have. If Jesus is God, then he gets to call the shots in my life and in yours and in every situation. I think that's why people have a tough time seeing Jesus as God. Because when we follow that line of thinking, we realize I don't get to call the shots anymore. If Jesus is God, then he gets to do what he pleases. And it's my privilege to serve him. So let me ask, how do you view Jesus? Because how you view Jesus will affect. It will determine how you respond to him. Your understanding of who Jesus is will affect how you worship. The truth is, our view of Jesus affects everything else in life. It affects how we interact with our friends. My view of Jesus affects how I train my children, how I love my wife. My understanding of who Jesus is affects how I behave in the workplace. It affects the things that I look at. It affects the things that I say. It affects the places that I go. It affects every part of my life based on that one answer. How do you view Jesus? To truly understand the Gospel, to really be a Christian, means that you submit to Jesus' authority in your life. It means to bow to Him to surrender your life to His will. And I want to challenge each person this morning. Very simple application. It can go in many different directions, but very simply, look at your life. Look at the last few days of your life. Look at the last few weeks of your life. Look at 2019. Look at all of 2018 and ask the question, what does my life say about how I view God? What do the things that I'm doing right now and the things that I have continued to do for the past weeks and months and years, what do they say about how I view God? Your words might say, Jesus is Lord. But do your actions say that? Does your life agree? What is your view of Jesus? In just a moment, We'll we'll finish our, our, our gathering with singing a song. He is Lord. He is Lord. He's risen from the dead and He is Lord. And it says, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want you to understand what we're singing there. They're just words. It's a confession of what we truly believe. By confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, I am admitting that He's in charge. Not me. That means He's calling the shots. He's making the rules. We serve Him, not the other way around. We follow Him. We do His will. Because He is more than just a man. Yes, He is a man. 
He came as a baby. He took on human flesh. He walked and lived and breathed. He ate and drank. He died. He rose again. But He is more than just a man. He's also God. He's the great prophet. He's the greatest prophet. In fact, the Bible teaches He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the king. And as the king, He doesn't exist for my pleasure. I exist. You exist. For His. If if that's not the Jesus that you know, then you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. But if you see, as Paul says, in Him the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If that's the Jesus that you see, then what other choice do we have than to fall on our knees And to cry out, He is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. He is Lord. He is holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Worthy are You, O our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. How do you view Jesus? Who is Jesus to you?